You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 135 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last episode, we talked about the federal failure at Drury's Bluff on the James River. The accurate fire of the Confederate guns on the bluff and effective sharpshooting from the riverbanks proved too much for the unsupported Union naval attack. But while the Federal ships weren't able to proceed all the way upriver to bombard Richmond, that didn't change the fact that the James, at least up to Drury's Bluff, was now under Union control. This was important because, as we said before, the York River bordered the peninsula to the north and the James River bordered it to the south. With the destruction of the CSS Virginia and the opening of the James, the Confederates, including Jefferson Davis's military advisor, Robert E. Lee, greatly feared that McClellan would take advantage of the opportunity to shift his entire line of advance to the James. Abraham Lincoln also had seen this opportunity and hoped that with the opening of the James, McClellan would shift his line of advance, but Little Mac had no such plans. Instead, as we said last time, having pushed up the York River to West Point, he then moved up the Pamunkey River and established a huge supply base at White House Landing. From there, he could follow the line of the nearby railroad and advance on Richmond from the east. The shortcoming of this approach to the enemy capital was that a march on Richmond from the east, using the railroad as his axis of advance, would force McClellan to straddle the Chickahominy River, with part of the army north of the river and part south of it. By contrast, an advance based on the James would allow McClellan to approach Richmond from the south, meaning his left flank could be protected by the navy, and his right flank, if he withdrew his whole force south of the Chickahominy and destroyed the bridges, his right would be guarded to a large extent by the Chickahominy. McClellan, though, refused to switch his line of advance to the James. He later claimed this was because he needed to extend his line north to meet up with McDowell's Corps as it marched from Fredericksburg to join him. As y'all recall, we talked about this development with regard to McDowell at the end of the last episode. Just to review, though, McDowell's Corps was originally slated to be part of McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, but then it was withheld from Little Mac after Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton discovered that he had fudged the numbers with regard to the troops left behind to safeguard Washington. After Little Mac threw a hissy fit over this development, he was eventually given one division of McDowell's men, and now was to get the rest of the Corps, and even additional troops commanded by James Shields. 
the reinforcements added up to about 40,000 men. This welcome development contained an important and unwelcome catch, however. Though McClellan wanted McDowell's troops to come by water, joining him at White House Landing, the President insisted that the reinforcements march south toward Richmond by the most direct route. As Lincoln saw it, this overland route would save time and also let McDowell stay between Washington and the Confederate Army. All of this is important because McClellan later said, essentially, Hey, look, I couldn't switch my line of advance to the James because I had to extend my lines northward to meet up with McDowell's march from Fredericksburg, so I had to straddle the Chickahominy with part of my army north of it and part of it south of the river. This is important because this arrangement north and south of the Chickahominy left the Army of the Potomac vulnerable, and Joe Johnston would take advantage of this and go over to the offensive, with the result being the Battle of Fair Oaks. And later on, we'll see that Robert E. Lee also takes advantage of the situation, with the result being the Seven Days Battles. The only problem with Little Mac's later excuse-making is that he had already committed himself to an advance on Richmond from the east, even before he learned that McDowell would be joining him. We think the real reason that McClellan was unwilling to switch his line of advance to the James, despite the advantages of that approach, and instead chose to advance from White House Landing, in spite of the disadvantages of that line, is that it had one great advantage— it would allow Little Mac to use the railroad, and using the railroad would greatly ease the transport of his beloved siege guns closer to Richmond. These big guns were heavy and cumbersome, and difficult and time-consuming to move and in place, as had been shown at Yorktown. But McClellan, as we said previously, seems to have planned all along on conquering Richmond by siege, and so that being the case, his big siege guns were obviously all-important. And so what we're pointing out is that quite aside from the matter of McDowell's march from Fredericksburg, McClellan seems to have decided to advance on the enemy capital from the east via White House Landing, even though that had disadvantages, like having to divide his army north and south of the Chickahominy, but we think he chose that line because it had one great advantage. It meant Little Mac could use the railroad to ease the transport of his enormous siege guns closer to Richmond. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livese from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Whatever the merits of either line of advance on Richmond, McClellan did in fact choose to advance via White House Landing, and having made that decision, once he then received word of McDowell's advance, Little Mac elected to extend his right wing in order to join ranks with the southbound troops and to cover his base at the landing. As we mentioned last time, McClellan accomplished this by reorganizing the army into five corps of two divisions each. He deployed three corps, Sumner's 2nd, Franklin's 6th, and Porter's 5th, in a northwesterly direction so that they stretched from the railroad along the north bank of the curving Chickahominy for a distance of some 10 miles. On the extreme right, Porter's Corps was drawn up near Mechanicsville, six miles northeast of Richmond. Meantime, south of the Chickahominy, McClellan deployed his left wing. Key's Fourth Corps proceeded westward along the Williamsburg Road and dug in near the crossroads called Seven Pines, six miles east of Richmond. Heinzelman's Third Corps was stationed some five miles to Key's rear. By May 24th, all the Federal dispositions were complete. The tips of both wings of McClellan's army, on the far left and far right of the Union line, were so close to Richmond that the officers could set their watches by the chimes of the Confederate capital's churches. No sooner was every unit in place than McClellan learned from Washington that the extension of his right wing to join up with McDowell was so much wasted effort. McDowell, scheduled to link up with Little Mac in just two days, was being diverted once again. As in early April, Lincoln and Stanton were holding back McDowell because of the bold maneuverings of Stonewall Jackson out in the Shenandoah Valley. This time, Lincoln and Stanton hoped to eliminate Jackson's threat to Washington by trapping and destroying him with an envelopment by the forces of McDowell, Nathaniel Banks, and John Fremont. McDowell, as well as McClellan, protested this diversion of troops. McClellan wired Stanton, saying, quote, The real issue is in the battle about to be fought in front of Richmond. End quote. Indeed, Jackson was conducting his campaign in the valley expressly to prevent federal forces from massing an even greater strength in front of Richmond. But Lincoln remained adamant. McDowell's movement to join McClellan was suspended. McClellan later claimed that it was this decision to again withhold McDowell's troops from him that left his army dangerously split, with three corps north of the Chickahominy and two corps south of it. But as we've already pointed out, it was, in fact, Little Mac's earlier decision to advance via White House Landing that resulted in his army being split by the Chickahominy. 
In any case, this strange river was as quirky as its name. In dry weather, the stream was sluggish and measured less than 50 feet wide over most of its course. But a slight rise in the Chickahominy quickly inundated the surrounding marshes and wooded bottomlands as far as much as a mile on either side of the river's course. And the Chickahominy was currently on the rise. By late May, it had reached its highest level in 20 years. McClellan realized that the river presented an obstacle to the communications between the two wings of his army, and he put his men to work building no fewer than eleven bridges across the Chickahominy in a twelve mile stretch from Bottoms Bridge northwest to Mechanicsville. Though the narrow channel of the river could be bridged with short spans, the waterlogged bottomlands on either side had to be overlaid with lengthy, elaborate corduroy approaches. On May 27th, while waiting for the completion of the bridges, McClellan extended his right flank even farther. Noting that the President's order had simply suspended, not revoked, McDowell's march toward Richmond, McClellan still harbored hopes of seeing those 40,000 men marching down from Fredericksburg. To clear a path for them and to tear up the tracks of the Virginia Central Railroad, Little Mac sent a reinforced division, commanded by Fitz John Porter, to attack the Confederates at Hanover Courthouse, some twelve miles northwest of Mechanicsville. Approaching Hanover Courthouse, Brigadier General George W. Morrill, with Porter accompanying him, sent his brigade forward behind a screen of skirmishers from Colonel Hiram Bearden's sharpshooters. Three batteries of artillery pounded the brigade of North Carolinians who were in the nearby woods. Although outnumbered, the rebels impulsively launched an attack. One of Morrill's regiments, the 25th New York, was broken and a battery of artillery put out of action. But the Confederate charge was repulsed by the fresh 14th New York, whose fire was so intense that one officer reported his men had to pour water on their musket barrels to keep them cool enough to handle. Morrill then sent forward the 9th Massachusetts, called the Irish 9th, and the 62nd Pennsylvania in a counter charge. The Confederates fell back, and the Colonel of the 14th New York later wrote, quote, In a short time, the retreat became a complete rout. End quote. During the engagement at Hanover Courthouse, the Federals lost 355 men dead and wounded to 200 for the Confederates. Although five hundred rebels were also taken prisoner. To Joseph E. Johnston, the little battle at Hanover Courthouse was ominous, for McClellan's sudden move in that direction strongly suggested an imminent link up between his army and McDowell's force. On that same day, another alarming report convinced Johnston that his suspicions were correct. That report said that McDowell's vanguard was observed marching south from Fredericksburg and was only 25 miles from Porter at Hanover Courthouse. Until now, Johnston's apparent lack of determination had bewildered Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. Repeatedly refusing to tell them where or when he intended to make a stand, he had retreated to the south bank of the Chickahominy, the last natural defensive barrier before Richmond, just 12 miles away. Then, professing himself dissatisfied with the unhealthy conditions along the river, he had fallen back to the very outskirts of the capital. Joe Johnston's indecisiveness was apparently chronic. One of his acquaintances had noted that Johnston put off decision making 
even on a bird hunting outing before the war. The man said, quote, He was a capital shot, but with Colonel Johnston, the bird flew too high or too low. The dogs were too far or too near. Things never did suit him exactly. He was too fussy, too hard to please, too cautious, too much afraid to miss and risk his fine reputation for a crack shot. The exactly right time and place never came. End quote. But now Johnston was persuaded that the right time and place had come. A link-up between McDowell and McClellan would mean the Federals had massed nearly 150,000 troops at the gates of Richmond, a superiority of better than two to one, and so that link-up had to be prevented at all cost. Consequently, Johnston devised a plan to strike the right wing of McClellan's divided army at Mechanicsville. The attack was set for May 29th, but on the night of the 28th, in the midst of a council of war with his subordinates, Johnston learned from a courier that McDowell's troops were not, in fact, marching on Richmond, but returning to Fredericksburg. It turns out McDowell had made the demonstration just to mislead the rebels. Now that he didn't have to worry about McDowell, Johnston switched to a course of action that he had preferred all along. He would attack south of the Chickahominy and overwhelm the Federal left wing, the two corps of Keyes and Heinzelman, before they could be reinforced from across the rain-swollen river. A Confederate reconnaissance on May 30th showed that the Federal positions south of the river were unbalanced. The lead division under Brigadier General Silas Casey of Key's Fourth Corps had deployed at right angles to the Williamsburg Road, about a half mile west of the Seven Pines Crossroads. His position was reasonably strong on the left flank, which extended south of the road to the marshy border of White Oak Swamp, and Casey was heavily supported to the rear. There the divisions of Darius Cook and Phil Kearney were stacked up along the six-mile stretch of road between Seven Pines and Bottoms Bridge to the east, with Joe Hooker's division deployed just to their south. But the Federals were weak on the right. Confederate scouts had found that Casey's front extended north from the Williamsburg Road for a mile or so to Fair Oaks, a station on the Richmond and York River Railroad and the rebels had learned that the enemy line here was thinly manned. Northeast of Fair Oaks, a virtually impassable wilderness of marshes and thick woods stretched three miles to the Chickahominy, where the nearest federal reinforcements, Edwin Sumner's Corps, were camped on the far bank. Surveying all of this, Joe Johnston decided to pull the trigger and attack the vulnerable federal left wing early the next day, Saturday, May 31st. And that's where we'll leave things this week. Next week, we'll look at the Battle of Fair Oaks, as the Federals named it, while the Confederates would call it Seven Pines. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And with Christmas fast approaching, we wanted to give y'all a holiday book recommendation. As you are probably already aware, this year, 2015, marked the 25th anniversary of the release of Ken Burns' landmark PBS documentary on the Civil War. And so, of course, we'll recommend that you watch that historic five-part series if you've never seen it, or watch it again if it's been a while. But then there's also a companion book that was produced to go along with the series, and it would make a great gift for someone this holiday season. 
It's titled The Civil War and Illustrated History by Jeffrey Ward with Rick Burns and Ken Burns. Yeah, and so that's our special holiday book recommendation. It'd make a great gift for someone who may not know much about the war, but even a diehard Civil War buff will find it interesting with all the photographs you'll find here uh, that Ken Burns used so effectively in the documentary. And there are also many of the first-person accounts that were so moving when they were read in the episodes. So there's a lot of good stuff here for everyone. Anyway, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you just head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find contact information for us and also links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. So please be sure to check those out. And then if you listen to the show on iTunes, please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating or even taking a minute to write a review since doing those things helps other people discover the podcast. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has left us those great reviews on iTunes lately. We really appreciate them. Definitely. Uh, And then we have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week, Timothy B. and Judy W., We're glad to have you on board. Earlier today, we released the 24th members episode, which was the first of at least several shows that we'll use to look at the Union conquest of New Orleans and then the city's subsequent occupation. Uh, So we're excited to share that with the members of the Strawfoot Brigade. And then we also wanted to thank Keith D. from here in Colorado for his donation this past week. And with that, we'll say thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us next week when we look at the Battle of Fair Oaks. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.